you would turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. Donald read from Isaiah 59 earlier. We'll be there in the second sermon this morning. My goal is to get through both the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Lord willing, we will do that. Does anyone remember when we started the book of Ephesians? August of 2021. So we're, if I do both of these, we're getting really close. And I'll stay true to my claim last week that, that we would do cover this section in four weeks. Does anyone know what book we're doing next? What we're preaching through next? Micah. So you have five or six weeks to begin familiarizing yourself with the book of Micah. And so as you're reading through it, as always, we should be looking for how it points to Christ. And so you can be reading it as a family. You can be looking at it together and searching that out um, because that's how it becomes a means of grace as we see Christ. As we behold him in his word, we are being transferred from one degree of glory to another. So, so I pray that you're, if you haven't started, you will start um, doing that. I'm really excited about that. So Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 10 and read down through verse 17 since it wasn't read earlier. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, which is where we start today, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we're not obviously going to cover all of this uh, this morning, but I wanted to read through it so we had sort of a context from which to deal as we'll kind of remember maybe from last week if you were here. But last week we covered verses 10 through uh, 13, so we're not going to go back over that. Uh, but that's where... Uh, we're focusing our attention on how Paul is telling us to be prepared uh, for um, um, the battle that we are in, the spiritual warfare, by putting on the full armor of God. Now, most of our time last week was actually spent on the devil um, and uh, demons. And I'm not going to go back over again that either. Uh, but if you weren't here, you can find that um, sermon on the website somewhere. Um, and I think you'll find uh, maybe a more balanced approach uh, to that than you might see um, in some churches. Um, but the key phrase for that sort of um, plea is balanced. Uh, I quoted C.S. Lewis last week, and I didn't have the whole quote with me today, but he said something along the lines, we, we, we generally, Christians generally err in one of two ways. We either don't really act as though or believe that Satan exists and is demons, or we err on the other side and think that the devil is behind every bush and every corner um, that, we, that we have. Um, 
But the devil is real, but he's not behind every problem that we encounter in life. And so the drunkard is not possessed by the demon of alcohol, and the serial adulterer is not possessed by the demon of, of lust. We don't find such titles given um, to demons in the Scriptures, and so we shouldn't do that. Man apart from Christ um, and his spiritual death um, is enough to account for sins like those. But we did look, under the, look at the devil under two headings. The first was he, he's defeated but dangerous, and so meaning Christ has already fulfilled the ancient promise that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the, the seed of the woman, which is Christ, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Um, and so that is um, um, Satan. Satan, or Jesus has done that. So where did Jesus defeat Satan? Uh, we might say that he won this victory in his first coming, but the cross was what foiled Satan's rebellion against God completely. And so from uh, the fall until the cross, Satan had tried everything uh, to stop Christ from fulfilling his mission by trying to stop him from being born uh, throughout the Old Testament, um, but just trying to stop him from saving those, which was God's plan, uh, who had been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth. And so the cross is the atoning sacrifice that did save us. And so the resurrection loudly proclaims the sufficiency of that atoning death for us. And so the devil is defeated. And as we looked at last week, he's also been bound. The binding of Satan. We saw that in, in Revelation chapter 12, along with the parallel passage in Luke chapter, chapter 10, where Jesus says that he saw, as he sent out the 72, and the 72 came back, and they were excited because they saw how they could cast out demons in his name, or they were subject to him in his name. And so he, he says he saw Satan falling from the sky. So Satan is defeated. He is bound for almost the entire duration of the millennium, being let loose just at the very end for the final battle where he'll be thrown into the um, lake of fire. And so it's the second coming. But until then, he is still dangerous. So John the Revelator tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan is spitting mad and that his fury is aimed primarily at the church, which is represented by in Revelation 12 by the woman and her children. So two pictures depicting um, the church. John also tells us um, that his main tactics, or as schemes, that Paul calls them in verse 11 of Ephesians 6, um, is to lie and to accuse. And so he's defeated, but he's still dangerous. And the second heading, so the first heading was he's defeated, but still dangerous. The second heading um, was that he's powerful, but limited. Uh, meaning that he, he does lie, and those lies are powerful. He does tempt, and those temptations can be deceptively alluring. He does accuse us, making us doubt who we are and where we stand before God, but he is limited. Demons might indwell unbelievers, but they certainly do not indwell believers. So that's one limitation that he has. Also, as believers, we can be tempted, but sin has no dominion over us, as Paul tells uh, the Romans. Um, um, Sin will not have dominion um, over us. Um, also, James tells us that, that we can resist him. So he's also limited in that way. He's also limited by space, meaning that he is not omnipresent. He's not in your room at night, every night, whispering in your ear to do something, or in your car, or at your workplace, or everywhere you go all the time. He's not omnipresent. He's also limited in knowledge of us, meaning that he's, he's not omniscient. He can't read your mind. And so he's limited in space, limited in power, limited in knowledge. But again, still 
powerful. And so this is our enemy. And we are engaged in a battle against the devil and his demons. And so what are we to do? And so ultimately Paul says for us to stand. Now after stand, therefore, after that, that's the command, there are four participles that follow that that show us how we are then to stand or how we are enabled then to stand. And so having fastened the belt of truth or having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on gospel shoes, taking up the shield um, of faith, um, those four participles tell us how we are unable to stand. But the command is itself, stand. And so why does Paul say stand when he tells us to wear armor? Uh, why does Paul tell us to stand and not fight when clearly this is, as we saw last week, Christ's armor that he wore to fight in? So why does Paul tell us to stand and not to fight? Well, it might be helpful for us to sort of understand redemptive history. Uh, we certainly see warfare in the Old Testament prior to the New Covenant um, that Jesus would fight to bring in. Uh, the armies of Israel were God's rod of judgment, showing forth an end times display, a picture of what would happen to all those who are outside of Christ, who do not believe, who do not follow Christ. Israel went around with shields and swords to kill idolaters and to kill those who were in the land and not following after God or not obeying God. And so it was a picture of judgment. In the New Testament, we experience warfare in a very different way. Church is no longer called upon to be a literal army foreshadowing the coming final judgment. We no longer have a literal allotted land to keep clean and purge with the death penalty. We no longer have a nation state to monitor and enforce laws with punishments. Our weapons have changed. And so the church is called to be a witness who take the message of Christ's finished work to those outside of us and offer them life, not death any who would believe and repent. If you remember our study in Zechariah years and years ago, that was Zechariah's vision. Now, of course, the near fulfillment of that, of, those, of that prophecy in the book of Zechariah was the rebuilding of the temple as they come back from captivity. But it was looking forward also to when Christ would come and establish his kingdom that would be without borders, um, that would be so big that, you, that, that it wouldn't be able to borders wouldn't be able to hold it, and that God himself would be a fire of protection around it. And so he's telling Zechariah, and he says, how are you to fight the nations? Because they're worried about the nations coming and trying to stop them from building the temple. And so he says, to pick up their weapons of warfare would be a hammer, would be a ruler, would be a saw, would be a measuring line or a measuring tape. And so the idea was, is that we are busy about building. And so that's a picture of life in the new covenant building the kingdom of God by declaring Christ's gospel message of victory, not with weapons of warfare. So Jesus has already won the fight. He's already won the battle. And so Paul says, stand in that victory. But we do have an enemy. And so to stand against him, we need armor, which we get to right now. Um, so the belt of truth Verse 14, the first part, verse 14a, having fastened on the belt of truth. And Paul starts with the belt um, because the belt was the place that every soldier started. In those days, they strapped it on first, 
because it was actually worn beneath the armor. So it's more akin to undergarments <laughs> uh, than, than it is actual armor. But it was essential. So in those days, Old Testament, even before them, and the New Testament, soldiers were wearing what everyone wore, long flowing robes or tunics. And so before the battle started, to prepare himself for battle, the soldier would then take up the, the tunic or the robe and roll it up and tuck it uh, within his um, belt. Um, because if he didn't, he'd likely trip over the long robe that was falling down at his feet as he's trying to run or trying to fight or trying to do battle. And so that's sort of the idea. Girding himself or tucking his tunic in his belt to free himself for battle or free himself for mobility. Um, now this was obviously true of Roman soldiers that Paul was familiar with and probably even the guard that he was chained to while he's writing this letter could be wearing that. But more importantly, this piece of armor goes back further than that. It goes back to the book of Isaiah and other places, but specifically Isaiah, which we're going to look at today. Um, it's an allusion to what the Messiah would wear, predicting what the Messiah would wear when he would come to fight to defeat our enemies. And so the belt of truth is found in Isaiah 11:5, which reads, And he, being the Messiah, he shall have his loins girt with righteousness and his um, sides clothed with truth. Yours might read a little bit differently, but that's a more literal rendering of the passage. He shall have his loins girt with righteousness and his sides clothed with truth. We'll come, come back to this. But Paul is saying that in the same way, uh, the Christian must gird himself or ready himself with the belt of truth. So this is referring to truth found in God's Word. The believer who's equipped with the Word of truth is set free, just like a soldier is freed for action or for mobility. The believer is set free when he puts on the belt of truth. And Jesus makes this link uh, in John chapter 8 where he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. First uh, Peter 1.13 talks about the same picture of girding up your loins, depending on what translation you have. Um, but the New King James actually reads, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. The ESV, if you're looking there, 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. So one translation, gird up the loins of your mind. And then the ESV, therefore, prepare your minds for action. That's the idea. So girding up is equal to preparing yourself. And every Christian must be girded or prepared um, with the truth. As Paul says to the Romans, this preparedness must be done repeatedly. So Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so that's in the present imperative, meaning that you're doing it all of the time, every day, renewing your mind, renewing your mind. Because there is a battle for the influence of our minds. If we subject our minds to air or to what the world's way of thinking, it's going to loosen the belt of our minds. So one commentator says, in reference to 1 Peter 1.13, it's not physical exertion that Peter has in mind, it's mental. If the purpose of the girding up of the clothing was to put out of the way that which would impede physical movement, the girding up of the mind would be the putting out of all that would impede the free action of the mind. 
in connection with the onward progress of the Christian. So he translates, this commentator translates First Peter this way, Wherefore, having put out of the way once and for all everything that would impede the free action of your mind. And so a question for us is what impedes our minds? Well, I think things like worry and fear and anxiety, hate, unforgiveness, impurity. These are the things that impede our mind. And by the Spirit, power of the Spirit, we as Christians are able to put out of our minds those things that hinder our mind's free action. Thus, the Christian has the privilege of the carefree mind. Do you have a carefree mind? If you're a believer, you can and you should. Peter says, prepare your minds for free action. Paul in Romans says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Jesus says that if we are his, we are able, uh, as we abide in his word, we are able to be set free by that truth. So this is two things. First, rid yourself of anything that cripples the free action of your mind. And then secondly, fill your minds with objective truth. Now, one of the debates that people have about this section or the belt of truth itself is which truth is it? Is it objective truth or is it more of a subjective truth? The way that we live, does it refer to integrity or reliability? Well, I don't think we have to divorce that uh, or, or, or just pick one. I think we can um, think of that in terms of both, which we will in a moment. But starting with objective truth in relation to everything that we just said and those things that, that impede our minds, when we hear lies and are tempted to believe those lies and so become worrisome or fearful or anxious, what do we do? Where do we go objectively? So turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, if you would, with me. If you've ever come to me for counseling, you will remember this. And as you're turning there, I'm getting out a piece of paper and I'm drawing on the piece of paper. Um, those of you pr probably remember this. Um, but starting in verse 6. So this is a practical way for you to remove the things that impede our minds. So verse 6, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. So rid your minds of worry, anxiety, and fear. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we'll get to prayer in a few weeks. And the peace of God, so carefree mind, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard see, uh, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So if one of Satan's lies enters into your mind, whether it's directly from Satan or just from the world as the lies have infiltrated the world, if you start to worry or fear or doubt or become anxious, then simply change the channel uh, in your mind. Turn it to something true, like God is sovereign over all things, and everything is happening in accordance with his eternal decree, and all things, he's causing all things to work together for good for those, those who love him and who are called according to um, his purpose. Um, 
Turn it to something lovely, like the divine warrior, Jesus Christ, who we'll look at today, who has won all of our battles for us already. Turn it to something excellent, like nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in, uh, in God in Christ Jesus. Turn it to something worthy of praise. Dwell on God's character. Feast upon the promises um, of God. Think about the coming new heavens and new earth. Paul and I were just talking about that a moment ago. When tempted, remind yourself that these worldly pleasures are fading pleasures and that they're empty. They're empty vapors, empty clouds that hold no promise. They hold nothing of what they promise. They're empty. Remind yourself that no temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. Um, God has made a way of escape through the belt of truth. When something not true enters your mind, change the, sem- the channel in your mind to something that is true and then practice it, Paul says. Do it over and over and over and over again. <laughs> Make lists. Write down the lies that you hear and often fight to not believe and then write a corresponding truth on the other side. Look up scriptures that apply. Write them down. Meditate upon them. Memorize them. Put on the belt of truth. And that's important because back in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, having fastened. That is in the middle voice, meaning this is something that you're to do. This is something that we're to do. So you have to fasten up your minds. Too many Christians don't care about this step enough. Too many are content with church on Sunday or, and listening or content to go to flock gatherings or content throughout the week to turn on a podcast or to listen to sermons of our famous celebrity um, pastor. But we can't fasten your belt for you. You can't merely be fed by the, fa- the pastor or the flock leader or the, the guy that you're listening to online. They can't fasten the belt for you. You have to wrestle and grapple and stretch with the truth yourself. So take time to do it, to sit and to read and to meditate and to study. There are some, um, so many resources that are available for you to teach you how to understand hermeneutics, how to understand how to interpret the scriptures for yourself. Learn those things. And then pray as you begin to open the word for God, Psalm 119, to open your eyes that you might behold wonderful things from God's Law, or 2 Timothy 2.15, to be ready to present yourself to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. And so do you have your belt of truth on? What if a Mormon would come to you and to claim to you um, that we're to be gods? (laughs) What would you say? Can you defend the deity of Christ to a Jehovah's Witness or to a Muslim? Can you defend the Trinity? Explain justification by faith and faith alone in Christ alone to a Roman Catholic. Children who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. So kids, look up at me. Kids, look up at me. Do you read your Bibles? Why do you read your Bibles? Because you have to or because it's the truth? Do you pray? What do you ask God for? To give you understanding Read now as children. Read now. Learn to read now. After you hear a sermon, reread the texts at home with a new understanding of what's um, been taught to you. So we put on the truth, the belt of truth, by listening to the Word of God. I'm not discounting that. And so a church that preaches expositionally verse by verse with the Bible is the best way to go. Um, 
come to church ready to listen, to flock, but read the Word of God, study, memorize, meditate, speak it to others. Um, look for Christ everywhere you read, and then walk in its truth. We're to walk in it. Like the, the, the promised Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11, it's to be a trait of ours. We're to be clothed with truth. <laughs> this is the outworking of the objective truth in our life, and Paul's already been dealing with this specifically. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, we have this objective truth, and he says, contrary to the pagans, contrary to those outside of Christ who are in darkness and, and ignorant, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, or um, um, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's a better rendering of that. So that's the, that's the um, objective truth we were taught in Christ. And then walk in truth, so Ephesians 4.15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so we've learned the truth, then we speak the truth. It's the same thing, verse 25, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So we believe the truth, are transformed by the truth, and then we speak the truth. And so that's the first confidence that we have, and it's a wonderful confidence <laughs> that we have, that God has remade us after his image in righteousness and holiness of the truth. God has recreated us. And there's a quote from Thomas Watson that I, I can't remember exactly what it says, but in real, I think it's in relation to the, 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 the use of the means of grace, that it's the regular use of the means of grace, that it's harder for the Christian to sin than it is to obey. When you're actually spending time putting the belt of truth on the breastplate of righteousness, the shod, uh, having our feet shod with the gospel, the helmet of salvation, it's harder, he says. That's quite a statement. So that's a great confidence that we have. We are not two natures within one body fighting against each other. The old man has been crucified, and we've been raised to walk in the newness of life. And so learn new habits. Put on the belt of truth. That's the first confidence, but the second confidence is this belt has been tested. And so back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. This is Christ's belt of truth that we put on. It's first worn by him. That's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful news for us because the truth, truth of it is, is we're not always very good with putting on the belt of truth. We might know the Bible front to back, but maybe we study with wrong motives. It's an intellectual exercise for us, which is common within Reformed churches. And so we're trying to ace a test more than we are um, to do um, anything else. Um, or uh, we're quick to apply the truths that we read in the Scriptures to other people and, and not to ourselves. There's a whole host of reasons of how we might um, have a loosened belt around our waist, but the good news is that Jesus wore the belt first. So Jesus stepped into the fray for those who turned their back. If you read Isaiah 11, which we don't have time to do, turned their back on the light and walked in darkness. And so God was sending him and did send him to be the Messiah in the line of David to deliver us. And so Jesus 
as our divine warrior, and he would come, and he did come, and he would come to save us and bring us into that final blessing of peace, peace that will one day extend throughout all of creation. And so the toxic effects of the first Adam's failure are being reversed by the second Adam's success. And he showed us also how to wear the belt of truth. So he wore it for us, he won the battle for us, then he shows us how to put it on. In the wilderness, Satan tries to persuade Christ that God wouldn't provide for his needs. And so he says, make this stone turn into, into bread. And Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan then tries to get Jesus to perform a miracle by throwing himself off of the temple. Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan floated the biggest lie of all. I will give you all the kingdoms of this earth. Look around. Look at all of them. And this was something he could offer. And Jesus um, responds, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. And only him shall you serve. So Jesus showed us that the belt of truth was sufficient for all of the schemes of the devil. So we have to know it. Tightening the belt is knowing the scriptures and living out those scriptures. So fasten the belt of truth, do it always, do it every day, and then put on the breastplate of righteousness, which reads, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So with the belt of truth securely fastened, it works then as a foundation or a base for the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, and the order here is important. The breastplate of righteousness without the belt will not stay in place for the soldier. Likewise, righteousness without truth leads to hypocrisy. It does no eternal good to try and live a righteous life until, unless that righteousness is connected to truth. People point to people like Gandhi and Mother Teresa and say, wow, look at the righteous life that they lived. But their righteous deeds were not based on truth. God calls all human righteousness filthy rags. And so to live righteously apart from truth is impossible, but the idea is foolishness. So regarding man standing before God, if you don't believe the truth, righteous deeds are worthless. But with the belt of truth firmly in place, it is believing the objective truth of Jesus Christ and evidence of that belief being the outworking of that truth into our lives, that becomes the basis for the breastplate of righteousness. The soldier's breastplate was called, actually, the word actually means heart protector. <laughs> heart protector. Um, and certainly in spiritual battle, we need to protect our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it screams the issues of light. Protect your heart, because out of it screams all the issues of life. If your heart isn't kept, your life is going to scream. So we need to guard our hearts. So how do we protect our hearts? Well, Paul says righteousness. Righteousness is such, a, such an important theme throughout the scriptures that we need to really grasp what is meant by all of this. And we'll start with the righteousness of God. In Exodus 34, when God is describing himself to Moses, he says how he forgives wickedness and he forgives rebellion and he forgives sin. And yet he says he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So God's mercy and grace don't cancel out his justice. 
his holiness or his righteousness. And so although he forgives the worst of sins and the worst of sinners, he does so without ever compromising his justice. Scripture proclaims that God is both perfectly just and unassailably righteous. Deuteronomy 32.4, it says that he is the rock, that his work is perfect, and all his ways are justice. He's a God of truth and justice. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so God is a just God. His sovereign rule over the earth is founded upon righteousness. That word righteousness appears in our Bibles over 300 times. The word righteous appears over 250. So you have 550 times, probably closer to 575, where that word or the root of it is being used. And so righteousness then is linked to things in pictures like, like the sun, the stars, the light, Mount Zion, Mount Lebanon, treasure, jewels, gold, silver, precious stones, living stones, soldiers, runners running a race, wrestlers wrestling, servants serving, strangers and pilgrims. God also has a particularly love for righteous people. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Psalm 14, 5. God is with the generation of the righteous. Which is carried out further in detail in the next point. Only the righteous can enter God's presence. And so God is righteous and he loves righteous people. And only righteous people can enter into his presence. Psalm 15, 1 through 2. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Or Psalm 118.20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. So time and time and time again, we see that God's favor is on the righteous to the exclusion of the unrighteous. But just how righteous do we need to be? Perfectly righteous. Psalm 106.3 says, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do who do righteousness at all times. We need 100% keeping or positively keeping all of the, po- the positive laws and we, all the thou shalls, and we need a 0% keeping or a 0% breaking the thou shalt nots, the negative laws. James 2, 10 and 11, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so we think of that, God is righteous, God loves the righteous, only the righteous enter into his presence and it must be a full, complete, holistic, absolute, 100% righteousness. Who's like this? Only God is like this. Only God is perfectly righteous according to his own perfect law. And yet, 1 Peter 1.15 says, be holy as I am holy. And so in light of this, In light of God's standard of righteousness, is there any hope? God's verdict leaves you helpless. Romans 3, 10 through 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Worthless. No one does good, not even one. Entering into a relationship with this righteous God is absolutely unattainable on our own. So how has man dealt with the problem through various lies, various false religions? It doesn't matter who we look at. Even modern Jews, not Old Testament Jews who had sacrifices, but modern Jews have what they call mitzvahs. And if you have enough mitzvahs, then you get your name written in the book for that, God's good book for that 
for that year. Islam, Muhammad, said that righteousness is a good character. Nothing will be heavier on the scales than a good character and manners. Eastern religions believe in sowing and sowing and reaping and reaping and doing it well enough that you might get reincreated into something better and then just keep doing it over and over and over again. Roman Catholicism, justification by, is by the cooperation it's grace-infused works. It's by the cooperation of human will and human work and God's help. John Wesley even spoke of prevenient grace. God influences human free will. He influences us to the point that we'll make right decisions, but it's still left within our hands. The guy in the streets religion, I'm a pretty good person, measured against others. In all these systems, it's focused on us. And it's focused on works. And it does nothing to do with sin. And so they're all lies. The devil is told. God would be perfectly just just to leave us in this condition. But he hasn't. Man's dilemma with righteousness is exactly what we see going on in Isaiah 59. So if you would turn there, this will be the last thing. Probably. So Isaiah 59 is built on three sort of movements. And so the first movement, we won't go through all of them, obviously, um, is, is what I have in the outline is man's da- dangerous situation. So that's verses 1 through 8. So if you just sort of let your eyes run across it as I mention a few things. Um, but there, uh, Israel's sin has have built a wall between uh, them and God. There's a separation between them and God. Their sins have actually hidden themselves from, from God's faith um, so much so that he will not hear them. Uh, verse 3 says, Their hands are defiled with blood, and their lips have spoken lies. So they're not honest. Verse 4, they run to do evil. Verse 7, uh, their thoughts are bent on iniquity. Verse 7, they do, n- do not know peace. They do not know justice. Verse 8, their ways are crooked. Verse, verse 5 looks at this sort of uh, a striking image. They're so vile, this is a metaphor, but they're so vile they give birth to spiders and snakes. <laughs> uh, so I think this is confirmation that it's okay to, to hate spiders and snakes. But that's the first movement, and so it's man's dangerous position where he finds himself. And so then second movement is man's dangerous situation leads him to sorrow. That's verses 9 through 15. And verse 9 is the transition there, and it says, Therefore, and you notice that we have switched now. So if you begin reading read verses 1 through 8, it's you, it's them. Verses 9 through 15, it's Isaiah now identifying himself, the people, and saying we and our and we and our. Um, verse 9, we want light, we're walking in darkness. Verses 10 through 11, we want to see, but we're groping around like blind men. We're growling like bears and moaning like doves for justice, but it's far from us. Uh, verse 12, our sin is great. We've turned our backs on God. And so no wonder God has turned his back on them. <laughs> no wonder his righteousness, verse 14, is far from them. That justice has been turned back, righteousness standing far away. So the people with Isaiah acknowledging their great sin, they've gone from danger to sorrow. And then we come to the third movement, the last one, verses 15 through 21. This is what Donal read earlier. The turning point there is verse 15. Truth is lacking, and here's the turning point. The Lord saw it, it displeased him, and there was no justice. 
In the earlier chapters, God promises to deal with Israel's physical enemies, primarily Babylon. But now Isaiah uh, describes a far greater, far greater enemy that they need help with in this chapter 59, and that is sin. And so verse 16, God saw that there was no man, wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then verse 17, so he looks and there's no one to intercede for the sinful people who are crying out in their sorrow. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He's going to deal with the enemies, but he's coming, not as a fearful judge to his people, but as a redeemer to his people. The divine warrior isn't coming in judgment against unrighteous people who've turned their backs on God and people who growl like bears and moan like birds and give birth to spiders and snakes. But the warrior is coming with redemption. Not judgment, but redemption. And this redemption would spread, verse 19, to the West. What is that saying? To the nations. It's going to spread. This is looking beyond what's going on Israel and captivity and Babylon and all of that, it's looking to the new covenant. It's going to spread to the west, the nations, the ends of the earth will see the redemption of this divine warrior. How? How does that happen? Even here, we have an allusion to it. In, in verse 16, you see that word intercede. He looked for a man to intercede and found none. It's the same word that you see in Isaiah 53, verse 12. That reads, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. No man can intercede for the sins of God's elect, but Jesus would, and Jesus did. So when Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness, he's talking about the righteousness of God given to us through the gospel. The same alien righteousness that Paul refers to in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, a, a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. In Ephesians 6, 14, Paul is doing really nothing more than unpacking this promise of the divine warrior in Isaiah chapter 59. And spelled out even further as far as how that comes about in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is the battle that Christ put the armor on for. He certainly wore it throughout his entire ministry. He saw him do battle with Satan in the wilderness. But this is the fight in our stead. At the heart of Christianity are two equal and opposite transformations. Two equal and opposite transformations. God took Christ, the only one, Whoever lived in such a way that he could stand before God in his own righteousness. And God stripped him of all his righteous robes and made him to be darkened with our sin, with our iniquity, with our transgressions. All the filthy thoughts, all the abusive words, all the vile actions that you and I have committed, even the recesses of our mind that we only know about, past or future were laid upon him. On the cross, the divine warrior suffered the penalty for all of those sins. Death. Jesus died for our sins. The innocent and the righteous was treated as though he were guilty and unrighteous. And conversely, 
God then treats the guilty and the unrighteous as though we were innocent and righteous. He treats us as his beloved son. And so it's double imputation. Christ's righteousness imputed to our account and our sin imputed to Christ's. So we need to be clear on that. Instead of counting, not counting our sins against us, rather, he's counting Christ's righteousness for us. It's not that God simply chooses not to count it every time we sin. It's that he counts Christ's righteousness for us. Our sins have already been paid for. So every time we sin, God counts instead of that the time that Jesus stood firm in his own righteousness, unscathed in a similar temptation. Christ's armor stood unscathed in his war against the world and sin and the devil, and his fight was counted to us. And so there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. In Christ, the old have passed away. Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. And so it's all applied by faith. The fight of Christ for the righteousness we needed is applied to us all by faith. And so when we believed and we bowed down before him in desperation, we asked for God to take all of our sin, all that we had ever done or would ever do, and we asked him, please put this upon your son. Please move my sin, my rebellion to his spotless account. And then move his perfect righteousness into mine. Treat him as me, me as him. If you're an unbeliever here today, that's really your only hope. And that's the prayer that you would be praying today. That's your cry today, is to take all of your sin, for God to take all of your sin, put it on his son and put all of his righteousness into your account. If you are a believer, this is the armor that protects your heart. You, you know the truth. I know the truth. Even now, having been declared legally innocent and righteous, we sin. We can't even count the number of our sins. And so for many reasons, this truth needs to dominate our lives. So I had several applications, but just one. If when things are going well and you feel as though you're being obedient and that you're walking in righteousness... and you feel full of yourself, you feel impervious to what's outside of you, that's because you're looking at your armor. You've become enamored with your own self and with what you've been able to accomplish. Or on the flip side, if when things are not going well and you're struggling and giving in to temptation and you become discouraged and despondent and despaired, it's because you're looking at yourself. Either way, your eyes are off target. When things are going well, be thankful and look to the righteousness of Christ. When you suffer the failures of sin and giving in to temptation, take your eyes off yourself and look to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and be encouraged by that. 
And so when the devil comes and says God doesn't love you because you're a sinner, cinch up the belt of truth and point him to the truth that Christ has already paid for everything. Colossians 2, 14, 9 through 14. That everything, our entire record was nailed to the cross. Point them point him to the finished work of Jesus Christ and be encouraged. Or the devil correspondingly says, well, if God loves you either way, good or bad, why not be bad? Well, say that those of us who have been granted Christ's righteousness, we're to walk in that righteousness. May it never be that we sin and live in sin. And so righteousness, like truth, has its effect upon our life. And so we'll become progressively more righteous as we gaze upon our divine warrior, Jesus Christ. So put on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and do it every single day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for... Your word, we thank you for this armor. Um, I pray that you would continue um, to teach us and instruct us through your word about all that is available to us um, to fight against flesh, to fight against the world, to fight against sin, to even be protected against the devil. We're thankful for the victory of Christ that we stand in, his righteousness. Pray, Father, that we would be enamored by that throughout every day and be drawn to it, that you would use that to conform us to his image, that we might become even more practically righteous. Father, we love you. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.